Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and I'm joined as always by Simon Elliott, the head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. Now, as it happens, this week is the 100th edition of this podcast. And I wish I could uh, say that we are celebrating that anniversary in uh, better conditions than we are at the moment. Uh, As it happened, we started the podcast just after the outbreak of COVID in March 2020. And we did it because we thought it would be important to help people guide them through that particular crisis. And unfortunately, we are marking the 100th anniversary by uh, living through another crisis, which is in many ways, obviously, uh, the first one was very, very alarming. uh, And this one is horrendous, essentially, what's going on in Ukraine at the moment. Uh, We don't yet know how the war is going to pan out, but it is developing. There have been talks going on about a possible ceasefire, but the news pictures from our TV screens are very distressing to watch. So it is unfortunate that we can't uh, celebrate the podcast more enthusiastically, I'm afraid. Uh, And it's not been a good couple of months either for the market and for the investment trust sector because of what's happened in Ukraine. So anyway, Simon, press on we must, and uh, let's talk about what's been happening in the market this week. Uh, We've said uh, from the beginning of this conflict that there was obviously going to be a lot of volatility, and uh, I think that's what we've been seeing this week, is it not? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So it has been another volatile week for the market. Though saying that, actually, as we speak, the investment company sector finds itself in positive territory on the week. So just to put some numbers around that, On the first four trading days of the week, investment company sector was up about 1.8%. That represented a slight underperformance compared with the wider UK market. That was up 2.1% for those first four days. But within that, uh, I mean, we saw the market down or the sector down at least 2% on Monday. It was up 4% on Wednesday. So it really is swinging around a little bit. Just year to date, The sector is still firmly in negative territory, down about 14.5% or so. And that represents an underperformance of the wider UK market, which is down about 5, 5 5.3%. But discounts are always a good way to see exactly where market sentiment is at any one time. And unsurprisingly, we have seen the sector average discount widen out over recent weeks. Uh, It started the week about 8.1% although it has narrowed in a little, probably about 6.6% at the moment. And that compares with an average for last year, certainly, of about 3% or so. But, you know, as you correctly said, obviously, the market's attention is entirely on Ukraine and the grim news that continues to come from that country. uh, And the fact there is no obvious end in sight, though, whenever there is some positive news or talks or mention of talks, the market does react quickly to anything like that. So we have seen some kind of sharp swings. But this week has been punctuated by businesses pulling out of Russia. That's been a real theme. So names such as Visa, MasterCard, Amex, McDonald's and Starbucks all announced they're going to cease activities. And there has been speculation that we would see a Russian sovereign debt default in the near future. But it's very much a case of what does this all mean on a medium and long term view? Uh, A lot of discussion about inflation. I saw a report this week that suggested that the UK would hit 8% inflation later this year. A lot of talk about what this would all do to the prospects for economic recovery. Some people are mentioning uh, the possibility of recession in Europe. 
uh, as we go through the year. And certainly there's a lot of talk of stagflation. But certainly for the central banks who, to be honest, at the start of the year had a pretty difficult job to steer us through this, I think their task has become increasingly impossible. But as always, we hope for positive developments. Yes. And of course, in the background to all this, we've got the war continuing and we've also got a lot of strength in commodity prices. But the message there has been slightly mixed this week as well. Oil prices have been up and down and gold has been up and uh, dropped again a little bit further. So it is quite difficult to make sense of all the different moving parts that are going on. And in the background, as you say, we've got the central banks. We heard from the ECB this week about what its plans to do this year. And effectively, it's saying it's going to... uh, phase out its asset purchases uh, by the third quarter, and uh, only then will it look to decide what to do about interest rates. But Europe has been in the eye of the storm, effectively, from the Ukraine crisis. It's the most immediately affected area for obvious reasons. So that's interesting to look at. So we'll have to talk about this in more depth uh, as we go along. But before we do that, I think we should take a quick look at the uh, corporate activity this week. And uh, we're going to kick off with mentioning a quick update on Crystal Amber Fund, ticker CRS. That's right. So just to remind people, Crystal Amber Fund failed its continuation vote last year and in February this year, published a circular uh, with proposals to realise all their assets. I think there was one possible exception by the end of next year, so 2023. Those resolutions were passed at a general meeting this week uh, with a 69% vote. So the, the key thing to note here that there's one shareholder, the largest shareholder, Sabre Capital Management that voted against these proposals. And that shareholder was quite instrumental in the fund failing its continuation vote last year. But anyway, the vote, the resolutions passed. And so this fund is now on track to liquidate its portfolio over the next 18 months or so. Okay, so let's move on now and talk something more directly related to Ukraine. And this is the situation at JP Morgan Russian Securities, a ticker JRS. So tell us what's been happening there. Obviously, that investment trust has been very badly hit by the news from Ukraine and the consequent sanctions and so on. But give us an update on this situation, uh, Sam. Yeah, so with JP Morgan Russian Securities, there's kind of probably two things to note, really. So actually, funnily enough, this time last week, so Friday of last week, they faced a continuation vote. And that was actually a five-yearly continuation vote. It was just a, a coincidence. It kind of popped up at that time. But there was some speculation that that might be an issue given what's come to pass over the last few weeks. In the event... The investment trust passed its continuation vote. I think 67% of its shares in issue were voted. Of those, 99% were in favour. So in other words, it was an endorsement to keep going very much on a going concern basis. And there has been some discussion in the media about that. I think there's a few points to make. I think the register, although it certainly has some uh, retail investors, there's some large institutional shareholders, and I suspect they would be minded at this moment in time to keep going. There was some talk that when you come to vote for the continuation, the invariably it's it's a number of weeks ahead of the actual event. Um, but it's worth reminding people that actually even on those continuation votes, you can change your vote up to and including the day. So you can attend the meeting and change your vote should you be minded. That isn't the case in this particular instance. So for the time being, JP Morgan Russian Securities is very much a going concern. I think probably the other thing to note as well is in terms of the NAV. So if you look at the share price uh, at the moment, obviously it's been hugely volatile but suddenly at the close of Thursday, it closed at 125p compared with an, an estimated NAV of about 45p. In other words, seemingly 176% premium, which is quite extraordinary ordinarily. And the company have put out several announcements about this. 
uh, that because of quite clearly the difficulties involved in valuing the underlying portfolio now, this is going to be reflected in their NAV. So they're still producing daily NAVs, but it will reflect the fact that there is an element of, of cash there. So obviously they can value that. There are some Kazakhstan holdings as well, and apparently they are still very much trading. But all the Russian stocks and the GDRs and the ADRs, um, they will be heavily provided against based on their last trading value. So I think they last traded on the 25th of February, and thereafter they would have applied quite significant discounts. And by that, I think we can assume between about 95 and 100%. So that's why you have that very low NAV, and that's why it perhaps appears to be trading on such a significant premium. As and when we see trading in Russian shares begin again, and who knows when that will be, obviously it will be reflected in the, in the NAV at that point. Yes, that is slightly confusing. But I mean, the implication of both those things, what you've said about the NAV, but also the continuation vote, is that presumably investors believe that uh, this trust, which has been around for you know more than 30 years and, and has uh, produced some good returns at different times, will emerge in some form or other. And that must be taking a view about what the consequences of the Ukraine situation are going to be. In other words, it assumes, I, I imagine, that at some point the Russian stock market will return to the list if you like, whether that's because of a Putin victory or some kind of negotiated ceasefire or, or some kind of post-war agreement, we don't know. But uh, would that be a logical interpretation of what you've just said? Yes. I mean, if you look at what's happening in terms of trading on this particular investment trust, th there has been quite a bit of trade going through. I think anecdotally, it would appear that institutional investors or professional investors, so wealth managers, would be very wary of trading in this particular name at the moment. I think that would probably not fit with what they're trying to do and their stance on it. However, you know, retail investors are, are clearly taking a different view and prepared to treat this particular investment trust as effectively as a warrant, uh, as a providing some kind of option pricing on the future of the Russian market at this precise moment in time. Now, that would be, you know, different people have different views on that clearly, but for while well, trading is absolutely permitted in this company. And obviously, from you know, JP Morgan Asset Management's point of view, they comply with all the trading restrictions and sanctions that it's uh, possible to do. It's all run in line with regulations. And it's worth reminding people as well that they stopped taking an investment management fee, I think, at the end of February. I think they made that announcement to the market a, a week or two ago. So it's very much a going concern vehicle at the moment. Yes, well, that's an interesting situation. It's now become a special situation, and we'll have to watch that quite carefully. I suppose one has to say at some point, you know, in the capitalist system, there is a price for everything, and you have to discount all the opportunities. But I think, as you say, wealth managers and institutions will be very reluctant to, to get involved in this situation until there is some clarity. But there'll always be some people who might be willing to, uh, to trade in these shares, whatever the circumstances. Let's move on and talk about another trust which has been least uh, indirectly affected by the Ukraine situation, and that is Jupiter Emerging and Frontier Income, ticker JEFI. We've had cause to uh, mention this a number of times in recent weeks. The board proposed some changes which were rejected by shareholders. So what's the latest on that particular situation? Yes, that's right. And just to be clear on that process, you're right. It was about the annual redemption facility that, that previously existed uh, that allowed a full redemption every year in June. In 2021, that saw 30% of the share capital be redeemed and uh, resulting in quite a contraction in size. The board made some proposals to change that, to reduce it to 20%. I think it was going to move to every five years, something like that, at um, a less frequent basis. Anyway, following uh, conversations with shareholders, the board have now put forward liquidation proposals. And I think that really was a reflection of, of the size. And if you look at certainly their market cap, 
today or something at the close of Thursday, it was £55 million. So we have seen quite a reduction in its size. And as the board observed, it was the risk of further shrinkage through redemptions and the limited opportunities for growth given the backdrop. And, you know, they cited obviously the invasion of Ukraine. I think that's, as they put it, only served to reinforce their reservations. So what's going to happen? Well, they're uh, considering a scheme of reconstruction, which will provide a full cash exit, less costs, but they'll also put a, an optional rollover into the, the arrangements as well, and that will be into another vehicle. There was a general meeting this week, but that was a, a technicality, so it basically opened and it was immediately adjourned, and that was in reference to the previous proposals. So just on the background to this, I mean, in terms of the performance of this trust, I mean, this trust has not been around that long. It was launched a few years ago, but not that many years ago. And uh, the track record, obviously, at the moment looks pretty uh, indifferent. But how much of that is due to the uh, performance uh, since we started this crisis period uh, this year? Yeah, so obviously, recent performance has been difficult in NAV terms, although we have seen the discount narrow in a little bit on the back of this news. But the investment manager is a chap called Ross Teverson, and actually, he has outperformed with this mandate since the launch in May 2017. So, I mean, I think from Jupiter's point of view, they'll be very disappointed with this outcome. And clearly, in terms of their stable, their investment trust stable, there's obviously Jupiter Green uh, and obviously Chrysalis Investments that we've discussed on a number of occasions. So it's it's a, a small stable now uh, after a number of mandates have disappeared in recent years. But that performance record, yeah, I mean, clearly very tough recently. But the three-year NAV number, they generated an NAV total return up 20%. That compares to a rise of 30% for the JP Morgan Global Emerging Markets Income Fund, which has been around for longer and, and, and is larger in size. Okay, so that one may be disappearing from our screens at some point in the future, the way things appear to be going. Uh, it's worth making the point about JP Morgan Russian Securities. I mean, that is now, I think I looked at the market cap, that's about the same size as Jupiter Emerging and Frontier Income. Uh, am I right about that? Roughly the same sort of size now because of the fall. But as you're implying there, maybe there's more sort of embedded value, surprisingly, perhaps in the JP Morgan Russian Securities Trust than this one. Uh, but they're both, uh, you know, on the face of it, operating at this level around 50 million, where it's, uh, you know, big questions are asked about the future viability of a trust that size. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, as a rule of thumb, I think we say under a hundred million pounds in size. I think you've got to question, you know, the kind of long term future. If you don't have a kind of distinct plan to kind of grow your assets either organically or through merger or whatever it might be, you're going to struggle to attract investor attention. You're right about JP Morgan Russian Securities. It's got a market cap of about 50, 51 million or so at the moment. But I mean, the thing to remember about that, that even if the decision was taken today to liquidate that portfolio, it would be impossible to do so. Whereas, obviously, in the case of uh, Jupiter Emerging and Frontier Income, one would assume that the vast majority of that portfolio would be relatively easy uh, to realise. Indeed. Well, let's move on then and talk about another very interesting and uh, slightly unusual situation, which we mentioned last week, which is what's going on at Scott Gems. That's ticker SGEM, which is an emerging market trust. We heard last week that the management team were uh, taking the decision to relinquish the mandate. Uh, but there's been another twist to that story this week, has there not? Yes. Well, a couple of developments, really. So first, notice was received from the investment manager, so first sentier investors, to terminate the investment management agreement. This won't take place until the, a replacement manager is appointed or there's a kind of backstop of six months' time. And, and obviously, the board is considering its options. 
Um, but we've also seen the final results published for this particular investment trust. And, and just to run through those numbers, these were the final results for the year ended 31st of December, in which time they, they saw the NAV up 8.2% compared to a rise of 11.1% for the MSCI Emerging Markets Small Cap Index. In share price terms, however, they were down 0.7% last year. But it was the commentary around this that I think kind of gives an insight into what's been going on. I mean, the board noted that actually the disappointing performance really since launch was a reflection of the manager's cautious outlook uh, and cautious approach to investing, certainly the initial funds that they raised, but also the subsequent geographical allocation. So they were very uh, underweight China, minimal weighting there. They're also underweight South Korea and Taiwan. They had a substantial allocation to Africa, which has been subsequently reduced, um, but that was a detractor. There was some story about trying to get the money out of Nigeria, which required some provisions. But um, there was also an interesting more recent development that on the 24th of February, i.e. the day of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Scott Gems made an investment uh, equivalent to 1.1% of NAV into a Russian company, a company called Fix Price Group, a Russian retailer, uh, and that was via an unlisted GDR. But this took the board of Scott Gems by surprise. It was the first direct investment in Russia. Uh, and I'll read out the quote. The board were, quote, very surprised with such a decision being made, and even more so that first Centier investors permitted such a trading instruction to be processed in the prevailing circumstances. Unsurprisingly, that investment is now held at nil value. Um, but as mentioned, Fersenti have now resigned and the board has already received interest from a number of parties regarding the investment trust management. So what am I to make of this? This is a, an interesting <laughs> development. Um, we said it was unusual for managers of a trust to voluntarily kind of abandon the management of a trust. But do you think that the uh, that decision was uh, prompted by this unfortunate decision, uh, unfortunate in many levels, to invest in a Russian company on the day of an invasion, the first Russian investment they'd made. I mean, that is a fairly extraordinary thing to do. I guess they, somebody must have thought it was a smart idea. Or is that what triggered the decision to resign as a manager? Or do you think it was more to do with other factors and not least the uh, the performance of the trust over time? Yeah, one suspects it probably didn't help. But I think this is more to do with the decision by Sentia Investors to close down Stuart Investors. So St. Andrew's Partners, who are the investment team responsible for Scott Gems. So I think that was the key catalyst here. Though clearly, as the board, we're, we're quite happy to share that there's been probably some quite heated conversations in the background over the last few weeks. So look, I mean, it's obviously a difficult situation. Performance hasn't been uh, good since launch. It's not just in, in recent times. So if you look at the performance since launch to the end of January 2022, and this is as per their fact sheet, their NAV was down 3.3% in that period, their share price down 25.7%. And that compared with a rise for the MSCI emerging market small cap of 34%. So, you know, this fund was doing something quite different. It, it takes a very conservative approach to investment it's kind of global small cap, but it's very much skewed to emerging markets and Asia. But I think it's fair to say that the performance has been disappointing. And again, it's pretty small in size. Yes, I mean, that's going to be an interesting factor as well. So that's you know the third trust we're talking about, which has got somewhere below 100 million in assets. So what do you think will happen, though? Obviously, a number of other managers will be interested perhaps in taking this on if they're in the emerging markets uh, space, but uh, presumably doesn't have a... Uh, particularly viable future as an independent company? Or, or do you think somebody will take it on and try to grow it? What, what do you think? 
in my experience, whenever an investment trust mandate kind of comes up for grabs, there's always a huge amount of interest. It's uh, It always amazes me how many people are quite excited and quite prepared to get involved. And you can't discount the possibilities of, of mergers as well as we've discussed in, in recent podcasts. However, I think a couple of things to note, it has an asset base of about £46 million or so at the moment, so it's not particularly large. And 25% is my recollection of the, of the shareholder base is owned by the investment managers and the board themselves. So Angus Tullock, who people may remember uh, as being a, a veteran investor in Asian equities and particularly Asian small companies, he's on the board. He's I think he was quite involved in the launch of this fund. And I think whatever happens to this company, they will be very influential, not just given their board responsibilities, but the fact they own quite a significant slug of the, of the share capital in its future. Okay, an interesting situation. I mean, it's just on terms of the shares, I mean, they, the implication of the numbers you read out was that they have been trading at a big discount or have gone to a big discount. What, what's the situation at the moment? Has there been any movement in that uh, as a result of these various uh, developments? So I've got them on a discount of about 19% or so, and that compares with an average discount of about 18% over the previous 12 months. So you might expect that discount to have narrowed given the, the circumstances, given that, the, who knows, there might be a liquidation of this portfolio or there's some kind of corporate activity obviously imminent. However, as mentioned, it's focused on smaller companies, global smaller companies, and it's quite a concentrated portfolio, about 40 or so holdings. So again, you know, is the market looking through this and kind of working out how easy it would be to you know, move this portfolio on in the, in the short term? Okay, so that might be an interesting one to watch the discount on that one over the next few weeks. We've got one more corporate development to talk about, I think, and that is Triple Point Social Housing, REIT, ticker SOHO, S-O-H-O, which, as you know, is one of a couple of investment trusts whose uh, investments in care homes and the like have suffered recently from a short seller in the case of Civitas and uh, regulatory issues with housing associations. So tell us what they've had to say this week about that particular situation. This is an interesting development. So they've consulted their shareholders and following that process, the board and the manager believe that making changes to their investment policy and the investment restrictions would be in the best interest of the fund. So what does that mean? Well, they're looking to remove the minimum lease term restriction. So at the moment, this stands at 15 years. They also want to make an allowance to selectively take on the cost of funding, planned maintenance, and the ability to enter into leases subject to upward-only adjustments. So you know, what does this all mean? I think you've got to look at this in terms of the regulatory concerns about lease lems. This is something that's come up from the, the regulator. And obviously, the fact that they were restricted to have that minimum lease term of 15 years uh, was obviously a key consideration. And we have seen other players in this space make the point that uh, as a result of those very long lease lengths, then that's why you keep running into problems with the regulator. And in the announcement, they made it clear that the managers identified a pipeline of opportunities that incorporate lease terms compatible with proposed changes to investment policy and which are consistent with the income and the capital return. But this is all subject to shareholder approval, and that will be subject to an ordinary resolution at the AGM on the 27th of May. So to some extent, this appears to be the board is kind of bowing to the concerns that have been expressed by the regulator and by market participants now who've reacted to those concerns. Uh, the key point being that in the original model, there was a mismatch between these long leases that these investment trusts like Civitas and uh, Triple Point Social Housing had. And on the other side, the regulator is concerned that the counterparties, if you like, you know, might not be around that long. There's a mismatch there between the commitments they've made and the realistic 
prospect for their own finances. So let's look at that. Civitas and, and Triple Point Station, they've both gone to big discounts, as we know. Has this announcement had any impact on the, the way that they're trading? Probably too early to say, I think is probably the, the key message here. I mean, I've got Triple Point Social Housing on a 17% discount at the moment. I mean, you're absolutely right. It has, of course, been derated. It's traded on an average discount probably about 5% over the previous 12 months. I mean, just to compare it with Civitas Social Housing, that's on a 21% discount at present. That compares with an average discount of about 4% over the previous 12 months. So they are both clearly struggling at the moment. And of course, the real concern about that from their point of view is that it obviously uh, prevents them from actually raising any more money and continuing to grow the trust, uh, which they were doing quite successfully before. They were trading at a premium until all this kind of issues blew up. And so presumably they're recognising that the market is, is going to remain close to them until or unless they can alleviate these concerns out there. No, I think that's absolutely right. So they're trying to move the story on. You know, this is obviously will take some time to do. Uh, and clearly you've got to make sure that whatever you do is in line with your uh, investment policy. You don't want to breach that. So you've got to do this with, with shareholder permission and all the rest of it. But clearly they have an existing book of assets. And it'd be interesting to see what happens to that as and when they, they change these investment restrictions. Indeed. And I guess it's worth making the point that, of course, these investment trusts are launched to, to make money for the investors, but they also do have a social purpose. And, uh, of course, that is one of the things that is, if you like, the opportunity cost of having these difficulties. You, you can argue whether or not it's the boards got this wrong when they launched these trusts with the business model they had. But there is, a, there is a cost to it, an opportunity cost in terms of the provision of social housing, which is something that we do need in this country. So they'll be hoping that this will be a first step towards, uh, if you like, normalization, I guess. Okay, so let's move on and talk about some results. While we've been preoccupied with the Ukraine war and the continued debate about inflation and interest rates and so on, uh, we're still getting results as the world goes on. And uh, we've had results from the grandfather of them all, the FNC Investment Trust, first investment trust to be launched, ticker FCIT. And they produced their annual results for, I can't remember exactly what year it is now, but it's something like year 154 or something. I haven't quite worked it out correctly. But uh, anyway, tell us what, the, what their results have been like. These were annual results for the year ended 31st of December, in which time they generated an NAV total return of 21.7%. And that was ahead of the benchmark, the FTSE All World Index, which was up 19.5%. In share price terms, uh, not quite as good as their NAV numbers. That was up 19.4% as the discount widened out a bit. But they also managed to increase their dividend. The total dividend for the year came in at 12.8p. That was up 5.8% year on year and actually represented the 51st annual increase. The net revenue per share was up 13% as well, and that came in at 10 spot 99p. So in other words, the dividend was uncovered, so they were able to use their revenue reserves to bridge that gap. But what worked well for them in the period? Well, gearing was a positive contributor, and also their private equity holdings as well, which were up 30% in that 12-month period. So we've talked a lot about how well private equity performed in 2021, and certainly FNC benefited from that. But despite that outperformance, the management fee has been reduced. So from the 1st of January this year, basically they charged their fees on a market cap basis up to the first £3 billion. It's at 0.325%. And then that scales down to, uh, when it's above £4 billion, it scales down to 25 basis points. And if that wasn't bad news enough for BMO, actually from the start of next year, they're going to change that. So it's only 0.3% up to 4 billion. 
and 0.25% thereafter. So they're already very competitively priced, as you'd expect from a large investment trust. Their ongoing charges ratio came in at 0.54% this year. But given those reductions in the management fees, you'd expect that to be lower going forward. So we've talked about these veteran generalist investment trusts for uh, a number of occasions. And we've said that one of the issues they have is you know, how to continue to prove their relevance in a world where it's much easier now to put together your own global portfolio of passive instruments. So uh, I guess one should see the reduction in the fees partly in that context. They are becoming pretty cheap. I mean, they're among the cheapest now, I think, in the in the whole sector up there with Scottish mortgage and the like. Is that the main reason why the fees are coming down? And uh, is it going to make a difference in their appeal to uh, the wider investment community? Yes. I mean, I think the way I would look at it is that we, we've seen a trend in over a number of years, actually, for investment trusts, particularly the larger ones, to look to reduce their management fees, particularly by putting in tiers. So in other words, when you hit a certain threshold bid and market cap or net assets, a lower rate is applied. What you're really doing in those instances is effectively allowing shareholders to benefit from the economies of scale that you undoubtedly get with these vehicles. In terms of if you go to you know 0.3% or 0.25% in the case of FNC above a certain level, does that increase the attractiveness of the vehicle? I think it's got to, to some extent. However, does it lead to a, a massive step up in buying interest? I'm not so sure about that, to be honest. I think really investors still react to performance numbers. And I think there has been this disconnect over the last few years where clearly the more growth oriented investment trusts have performed very well until recently, and they've attracted a lot of demand. And equally, those more defensive investment trust companies, and we, we talk a lot about the personal assets and the capital gearings trust, they've certainly benefited. But these kind of long-term index plus one, 2% type vehicles that arguably FNC is, um, they've struggled to really capture the imagination of investors. Do sharper fees really change that? I'm not sure they do, but it's got to be part of the, of the bigger story, really. So you just mentioned the tiered thing, but just remind us what the current market capitalization is of FNC, and therefore, assuming that it stays there until the 1st of January next year, what rate will they be actually be charging? Yeah, so I've got it at a £4.2 billion market cap at the moment. And it's worth just pausing on that point about the, the market cap. Why would a management fee be charged on that? The idea is that the investment manager is incentivized to close that gap between the share price and the NAV. So it's in their interest to get that discount in. So that's why you see some investment trusts go down that route. But it's £4.2 billion at this precise moment in time. In other words, that £0.2 billion would be subject to the lower rate of 25 basis points uh, from the start of next year. And in terms of how this trust is trading, we've mentioned this in the past as well. I mean, it's on a reasonably wide discount, I think slightly wider than normal. Uh, can you just tell us what the numbers are there and how that compares with the normal comparators? So I've got them on about a 10% discount or so at the moment. I mean, Alliance Trust, uh, not dissimilar vehicle in terms of what it's trying to do, probably about a 9% discount. Witten, an 8% discount. And then obviously you've got the Bailey Gifford Funds, more growth orientated. Monks on about a 7% discount. A Scottish Mortgage on a 4% discount. But actually just on that, again, over recent years, we've seen those kind of more generalist global funds being quite active in terms of their buyback programs. That would certainly be true of FNC. It's very true of Alliance Trust and Witten. In recent weeks, generally speaking, across the investment trust market, when the invasion first happened and we saw that pickup in market volatility, initially at least, buyback programs seem to take a step back. 
clearly, you know, prices were moving all over the place. Just in more recent days, we've seen buyback programs kind of kick back in again when there's just a slightly greater degree of stability in the, in the marketplace. So I would expect those kind of funds that I mentioned on those kind of wide discounts, uh, it would not be a surprise to see their buyback programs pick up from here. Is there any sort of general comment we can make here about what happens when we have a crisis like this? And obviously, every crisis is different. But is it the case that you know larger trusts are the ones that uh, people sell initially, and therefore their discounts are the, you know, the first to move? Or is it the other way around, which is what you would normally expect, that it would be the smaller, riskier trusts which would see the bigger discount movements? Is, is there any kind of general observation you can make about what's happened in the last uh, few weeks since this invasion happened? Well, I mean, obviously, discounts have widened out overall. That's certainly true. And there will be instances of very small or very illiquid or both investment trusts that perhaps didn't see that derating initially because, frankly, market makers have got other things to worry about than very small illiquid stocks that don't really change or don't really trade that much on any given day. But it will be really driven by volume in the vast majority of cases. Again, I suspect the vast majority of market makers will be trying to keep very flat books at the moment. So by instinct, they will try not to be too clever. They won't try to guess which way the market direction is going. Uh, And so they will respond to volumes. And that's why you can see discounts open out quite widely. And that will be a result of them being hit by stock. Okay, so we'll move on and talk about JP Morgan Midcap, which has had some interim results, a ticker JMF. Smaller midcap stocks have taken a bit of a beating in the last uh, few weeks, as we know. Uh, But these results were for the last year. And uh, tell us how well this particular trust did in those circumstances. So it's the six months to the end of December. In that time, they generated an NAV total return up 5.5%. That compares to a rise of 5.7% for the FTSE 250X Investment Trust Index. In share price terms, not as good, actually, down 4.4%. And that was just a reflection of the fact the discount went from about 2% to 11%. But it's all about the stocks, obviously, and they had a number of uh, holdings that worked for them in that six-month period. Watches of Switzerland, Future, JD Sports Fashion, OSB, while detractors included CMC Markets and Games Workshop, and they had a couple of IPOs, Victorian Plumbing and Alphaware, that weren't quite so good. But the managers of this one, Georgina Britton and Katan Patel, have done a good job over the long term for shareholders and actually interesting comments in the investment manager's report about why they are positive on the outlook for UK mid caps and why, therefore, the investment trust is 8% geared at the moment. And they make the case that given the circumstances that we find ourselves in the minute, it is likely that UK GDP will fall and inflation will rise. However, That said, unemployment remains low, household savings are high, and they think ultimately the the very sensible valuations on UK equities, particularly in the mid-cap area, uh, and that their focus on quality stocks means that they are well-placed on a medium and long-term view. Yes, it's interesting. I mean, uh, I spoke to Georgina Britton uh, not so long ago for one of my uh, Moneymaker Circle podcasts, and uh, she was very positive about the outlook for UK small-cap and mid-cap. But in the recent weeks, that hasn't looked quite so rosy a picture. But uh, the long-term value, again, another point that Stuart Widdison was making of addition, it looks on certain measures that you know UK small caps are really looking pretty attractive now. But uh, the price you pay for that is you get this uh, big downdrafts when you have uh, crises in the markets. How has uh, JP Morgan Midcap been trading and how does that compare to some of its, uh, there aren't many direct competitors, but uh, other smaller mid-cap trusts? Yeah, I've got it on about a 10% discount or so at the moment, and that compares with an average discount over the previous 12 months, about 6%. 
Um, that's a little bit tighter than some of its peers, actually. So we look at it versus Schroeder UK Midcap, for instance, uh, and that's on a 14% discount, average 8% over the previous 12 months. And also the Mercantile Investment Trust, which is also in the JP Morgan stable. It has a slightly different mandate, so it's mid-cap and it does have a, a smaller element in, in the small cap as well. But that's on about an 11% discount or so at the moment. Okay. So while I mentioned the Money Makers Circle, I should mention that we have a profile this week of uh, the Renewables Infrastructure Group. And I've also done a review of recent market moves. I've done a, a kind of video presentation just to show some of the moves that have been uh, recently happening in both the markets and in the investment trust sector. It's quite difficult sometimes to keep tabs on that. So I find the easiest way to do that is to use some charting uh, and to use that to uh, illustrate the way that uh, different trusts have performed and also how to look at how the model portfolios that we run have been performing during this very difficult crisis period. And uh, it won't be surprising for people to know that the defensive trust portfolio that I put together is actually up on the year still, which shows how you know how much potential there is even within the investment trust sector, which, as you say, the index has been down this year. But there are ways to protect yourself if you are prepared to forego the opportunities on the upside. Anyway, that's that. And then we'll move on and talk about some results from Allianz Technology, ticker ATT. We know they had a storming period over... 2020 and a little bit beyond. But um, last year was perhaps not quite as good a year as they've had, though they still made uh, decent returns. Yeah, I think that's right. So the NAV total return was up 19.4% last year, which sounds quite positive. However, it represented an underperformance against their benchmark, which was up 28.2%. And that was a reflection, really, of the fact that the market rotated away from mid-cap growth stocks, really towards the largest mega-cap stocks and more cyclical companies. So uh, just to give some names that people will be familiar with, Apple and Microsoft enjoyed very strong years last year. Now, they were both in this particular fund's portfolio, but they represented underweight positions. So I think Apple was about a 2.4% on average position versus 11% for the index, and equally Microsoft, 4.5% position but 8% underweight. So it just shows how those big names dominate the index. But this fund has a very strong long-term track record. Uh, Walter Price has been the lead manager since May 2007, so coming up for about 15 years now. And actually, he's a hugely, hugely experienced uh, technology manager. He's going to step back as the lead portfolio manager in July this year. And a chap called Mike Seidenberg will take over. And people who follow this one closely will be very familiar with Mike. He's worked with Walter uh, since 2009, actually. So, you know, hugely experienced. And, you know, they're going to continue to work closely together. So there's absolutely no change in the investment approach. Where there is a change, actually, is in the performance fee. They've just reduced that down a little bit. Uh, it's one of those investment trusts that still does have a performance fee and they've moved the rate of accrual down from 12.5% to 10%. So it's obviously, it's sold off quite uh, sharply recently, this particular trust. How is it trading? And uh, am I right in thinking that they have some kind of discount control policy or at least a, a commitment to do it in uh, in certain circumstances? Have they been buying back some shares or are they one of those which has been sitting on their hands, as you said, because uh, of the Ukrainian uncertainty? So their discount uh, at the close of Thursday, at least, was about 12%, that compared with an average of 5% over the previous 12 months. And um, just looking at some of the other familiar names in that sector, Polar Capital Technology, that's also on about an 11% discount. Herald 
our investment trust does something a little bit different. That's on a 21% discount at present. So clearly, the whole sector has been derated of late. But you're right. I mean, the, the, the message from the board is that the fund continues to consider buying back shares at discounts wider than 7%. And certainly, over the years, they've been quite happy to kind of protect that level through buybacks. But obviously, of late, I mean, arguably, market conditions have not exactly been normal. And you've seen those discount levels widen out a little. Indeed. So that's uh, become quite a big trust, of course. And uh, that's one of the reasons why the index of investment trust performance, along with Scottish mortgage and so on, they, the very large trusts that actually have a bigger impact on the index, perhaps, than on many of the other constituents in the investment trust sector. Let's move on and talk about BlackRock World Mining, ticker BRWM. They've had some annual results for the same period as well. And we know that they are at the other end of the spectrum. The things that BlackRock World Mining invests in have been doing very well and have been helped even further by the outbreak of the Ukraine war. There's always winners and losers from these uh, unfortunate events. But uh, if you're investing in the commodities that have been soaring in price, they will be benefiting from that. But uh, tell us about their annual results, Simon, please. So a good set of results for BlackRock World Mining. Their NAV total return was up 20.7% last year. That compared with a rise of 15.1% for their reference index. In share price terms, uh, that came in at 17.5%. And that was a reflection of the fact that discount widened a little in that particular period. But in terms of the, the, the results overall, well, actually, the first half of last year was particularly strong for BlackRock World Mining. It was a bit more subdued in the second half. And that was a reflection of the deceleration in economic growth in China. What also caught the eye was the fact that we saw a significant step up in the revenue return per share. That was up 114% year on year. And that was a reflection, obviously, what we saw in the resources sector in general of uh, enhanced dividends and special dividends. What that meant is that the total dividend that BlackRock World Mining paid to their shareholders That was also up sharply, up 109% year on year, and it came in at 42.5p. But in terms of where they are, the managers, so Evie Hambro and Olivia Markham have been responsible for this one now for any number of years. Uh, I mean, they are perhaps unsurprisingly positive on the outlook. They think there are great prospects for Chinese economic growth. Uh, And they also talk a lot about the energy transition story. It's, It's been a real structural driver of this space. And also the fact that we have seen underinvestment uh, for any number of years in the mining sector in general, and they believe that there are quite significant supply constraints, and, and arguably you're seeing that just in, in the last few weeks in, in terms of some of the kind of big spikes in commodity prices. So they're talking a good story, at least. Yes, and of course, one of the issues raised by the situation in Ukraine is this raised concerns about uh, security of supplies or availability of supplies in many commodities, because a lot of commodities are sourced either from Russia or from uh, Ukraine itself. For example, we've had this uh, dramatic uh, goings on in the nickel market in the last few days, which has effectively kind of been closed for a few days because of the uncertainty there. Uh, And so this kind of raises issue of whether or not countries who are in the West, if you like, aren't involved directly, uh, whether they're going to look to uh, uh, how they can develop other sources of supply of these commodities, given that clearly has been demonstrated there is a geopolitical risk involved in sourcing these often key components. So that's interesting. I mean, I do notice that BlackRock World Mining Trust, I think I've got this right, is, I mean, its share price has been very strong recently, and it's actually just got back to the peak it reached back in uh, 2011, which was the tail end of the last commodity cycle. 
and well, it, it had an earlier peak in uh, 2007 as well. So this is just a good indication of how mining is a very cyclical business and they're enjoying the good times and they're also bad times as well. Are you aware? I mean, a lot of people have been uh, presumably buying this trust. How is it trading on the back of all that? So it has been re-rated. I've got it on a premium rating between about 4 or 5% at the moment. I mean, it's been quite highly rated for a period of time. So it's been on a premium on average over the previous 12 months, about 1%. But certainly there has been demand for BlackRock World Mining and also its kind of sister fund, BlackRock Energy and Resources Income, which is a smaller vehicle. It has a slightly different mandate and, and obviously income, as the name would suggest, is, is part of that. That's also been issuing shares recently as it's been trading on a premium. And the yield, you're still getting a decent yield on BlackRock World Mining, are you not? Yeah, that's right. I've got it on my screen about 5.6% at the moment. Okay, well, let's move on and talk about uh, CQS Natural Resources Growth and Income, ticker CYN. This is not one we've talked about a great deal, but presumably they've been doing okay in this environment as well. Yeah, that's right. So these were results for the six months to the end of December. In that time, they generated an NAV total return up 15.2%, and that compared to a rise of about 0.2% for their composite benchmark return. The share price total return came in at 0.6% and that was a reflection of actually they got derated in that six month period. It went from a 3% discount to a 20% discount. But it's an interesting portfolio. It's a bit of a, a hybrid portfolio. So there's bonds in there as well, as well as exposure to mining and resource equities. Um, three managers, Ian Franco, Francis, Keith Watson and Robert Crayford are responsible. But they did increase exposure to fossil fuels last summer, so the summer of 2021, and that included Gazprom, which has since been written down to zero. But it's a diversified portfolio. They've got copper, 20%, oil and gas, 20%, precious metals, 20%, uh, as well as other bits and pieces, including nuclear, uh, 17% of the portfolio. And do they have a yield as well? I mean, how does that compare to BlackRock Well Mining? So much bigger trust. They do have a yield, uh, and I've got their yield on a historic basis for about 3% or so at the moment. Okay, let's move on and talk about Foresight Sustainable Forestry, ticker FSF. This is a very new investment trust, managed to get away last year, I think. Uh, tell us what they've had to say. Yes, so this was an update, actually. This wasn't a results announcement, but they basically announced that they've completed the acquisition of their seed assets portfolio. That happened on the 7th of March. Um, these were assets that we were aware of. So basically, just to remind people, this fund came to the market in November last year. They raised £130 million through their IPO. That was less than their target size of £200 million. But they've basically acquired those initial assets for a total cost of about £113 million or so. In addition to that, I think they're looking at commencing planting at a site in Scotland and uh, obviously they made an acquisition of a site in Wales as well. But it is very early days for this particular uh, investment company, but it is one to keep an eye on in as much as it hasn't actually performed particularly well since launch. So it was launched at 100p. It saw share price weakness in relatively short order. It went down to about 90p. It's recovered to an extent, but on my screen at least, it's on about a price of 93.5p, which is relatively unusual for a new launch to see that kind of share price decline so quickly. Right, and that uh, predated the Ukraine uh, sell-off. So let's move on and talk about Oakley Capital Investments, ticker OCI. This is always an interesting one. 
Tell us about what they've had to say, Simon. Yep. So these were annual results for 2021 and a very strong set of results. Basically, the NAV total return was up 35%. Share price times even stronger, up 48%. That was a reflection, effectively, of the increase in valuations driven by strong underlying earnings growth and multiple expansion. So the average portfolio company year-on-year EBITDA or profit growth was up 28%. So, you know, quite a concentrated portfolio with these names performing very well. So names such as IU Group, Tech Insights, which was actually sold since the year end, and a company called Wishcard Technologies Group. So perhaps as some of those names would suggest, Oakley Capital very much has a focus on kind of three sectors being technology, education, and consumer. And that obviously did it well last year. And just tell us how this one uh, sits in the private equity sector in terms of performance and rating. How does it compare to the private equity sector? Well, we know there's still a lot of trust trading at a big discount. Is this one of them? Yes, it is, basically. So I've got it on about a 25% discount. On average, it's probably traded on about a 20% discount. But basically, private equity as an asset class has been quite significantly derated over the, the last few weeks. It's certainly year-to-date having a tough time of it despite the fact there will be very little, if any, direct exposure to Russia. There's just a more sentiment thing going on here. One would suspect that, that private equity tends to be more risky asset class, rightly or wrongly, and that when we do see these moments of market dislocation, they do tend to get hit that bit harder. But if you look at the numbers for Oakley Capital Investments, if I look at share price terms, over five years, share price term on a total return basis, they're up 175%. I'm just trying to go other names. So HG Capital, which is quite a well-known private equity name, that's up 189%. Uh, so a little bit ahead of it, but both those names will be quite a long way ahead of the FTSE All Share over that five-year period. Okay, so we can move on then and talk about Polar Capital Global Financial Trust. We have mentioned this because it was being successful in raising some more money recently. Ticker PCFT, and they've now produced an annual report for last year. For last year to the end of November, it's worth noting, in which time they generated an NAV total return of 27.9%. That compared with a rise of 27% for their benchmark. In share price terms, they did even better, actually up 29.7% as their premium increased. But what worked for them in the year? Well, leverage, i.e. gearing, and also their allocation to US regional banks, uh, although they saw a little bit of detraction in terms of their stock selection. But as you note, I mean, we have talked about this one quite a lot because they've been very successful in raising additional capital. Uh, And in fact, in that 12-month period to the end of November, they raised new funds of £239 million. So it saw their market cap increase about 180% in that period. Also, the revenue is an important part of the story in the financial sector, and their revenue return per share came in at 4.42p. That was up from just over 3p in the previous year, and they maintained their full-year dividend at 4.4p. So in other words, that dividend was covered. Indeed. So it's been a kind of mixed story for them this year as well. I think I've noticed that obviously going into the year, and the reason why they were successful in raising money was that people were anticipating a series of interest rate rises and possibly a steeper yield curve as well, uh, as we came sort of normalised in the face of this inflationary shock that the world is still facing. But of course, uh, since the Ukraine war, expectations of where interest rates are going has changed quite significantly. And so this trust has actually sold off. They, I think they got their fundraising away just before the share price started to fall. So where are they at at the moment in terms of uh, off their highs, for example, or uh, in terms of the rating? 
Yeah, they're all very fair points. So over the last month, the NAV is down 12%. In share price terms, it's down 17%. So obviously a very short period, but just to kind of illustrate how we have seen that change in conditions. I've got them on a discount of about 3% or so at the moment. So this is certainly a case where the Ukraine situation has changed the short-term outlook for this particular trust, but of course, its uh, success will be determined over the longer term than that. Okay, we're going to move on and talk about some renewables now. Renewables have been uh, very much in focus because of rising commodity prices and concerns about energy security, not least the soaring price of gas and so on, and what the rest of Europe in particular can do about that to protect themselves against that particular potentially very severe economic problem if the war persists. We've got about three or four to get through here. So let's talk about Downing Renewables and Infrastructure Trust, ticker D-O-R-E, which I think only came to market quite recently, just over a year ago, I think. Yeah, that's right. So these were its kind of inaugural annual results, uh, just picking up that period. So just to remind people, they IPO'd back in December 2020. They raised £123 million at that stage. So it's essentially the, the running to the end of last year. In that time, they generated an NAV total return of 7.9%. And there were various factors in that. Strong operational performance, increases in long-term power price forecasts. And actually, following the post-year-end investments of about £40 million or so, the fund is now fully deployed into a portfolio with an annual generation of 355 gigawatts. But in 2021, uh, generation came in about 4.7% above expectations, which meant actually that operating profit of investments was 16.9% above budget. Obviously, with all these infrastructure funds, um, the dividend is an important part of the story. Uh, and during the period, they paid interim dividends of 2.25p. But actually, probably of, of more interest is what, what it's going to be going forward. So it looks as if they're paying an interim dividend of one spot to 5p. In other words, they're targeting an annual dividend of 5p. Okay, well, we can compare that in a moment when we talk about the next two trusts. Let's go back to Foresight Solar Fund, ticker FSFL, rather confusingly very similar to the uh, Foresight Sustainable Forestry ticker. But uh, tell us about their annual results. This is for the uh, year to the 31st of December. That's right, in which time they generated an NAV total return of 21.4%, so a very strong set of results. Again, what worked for them? Well, there's, there's a couple of things, really. They reduced their discount rate down, which is they used to uh, value the long-term cash flows. That helped increase the NAV. Um, they also, unsurprisingly, saw stronger power prices, particularly in the UK. And actually, UK portfolio generation came above budget. So this was all good news. What detracted is that they've got quite a significant Australian portfolio um, that came in below budget. And that was effectively because there's been massive work to the grid in Australia. Apparently, each city out there uh, has its own grid and they're trying to connect all these projects to them. So that detracted, it took, they were down about 21% below budget. But the idea is that in 2022, this will all be resolved. So in terms of the dividend, that they declared a total dividend of 6.98p, and that was 1.21 times covered. And in fact, they've increased their target dividend by 2% to 7 spot 12p. And that's forecasted to be 1.25 times covered. Okay, and we'll move on now and talk about Premier Might and Global Renewables Trust, ticker PMGR. While Foresight Solar has been around with one of the very first renewable energy trusts, this one is slightly more recent. Uh, tell us what they've had to say. 
So these were annual results to the end of December. The NAV was up 21.4% in that time. In fact, the total return on net assets came in at 26.5%, and that represented a significant outperformance for their benchmark. So compared with that benchmark, being underweight, technology and equipment manufacturing certainly helped performance along with stock selection in some of their larger holdings, so Chinese, UK and European names amongst them. In terms of the revenue return per share, that was actually down 20% or so from 2020. So it came in at 7 spot 43p. And the total dividend for the year came in at 7p. So that was still covered by revenue earnings. Okay, so obviously these are all pretty positive results uh, from Renewables Trust. There have been a lot of different uh, pressures on these investment trusts, on some good, some bad, as we've mentioned a number of times. But how do these ones compare in terms of uh, their rating and their yields? I mean, the solar funds, as we noted uh, recently, both Bluefield Solar and Foresight Solar, they were looking pretty cheap, I thought anyway, on the on a discount, I was looking for reasons why that might be, and because their prospective dividends up nearly at the 7% range. Yeah, so in terms of the ratings, well, downing renewables and infrastructure is still quite early days for that company, as discussed. So I've got them trading around NAV at the moment, uh, and they're looking to kind of ramp up their dividend uh, as discussed. So that would give them a yield on that 5p dividend, uh, just short of 5% on their share price of about 102 spot 5p at the moment. Foresight Solar, obviously that's been going uh, quite a bit longer. That's on a 2% premium, but that's still a long way behind some of the other renewable energy infrastructure names. So we talk a lot about Greencoat UK Wind. That's on a 19% premium at the moment. We talk a lot about names like JLN Environmental Assets at 11% premium and the Renewables Infrastructure Fund as well. Um, That's on a 19% premium. So those more diversified, well-established renewables plays. They certainly have traded very well of late. But Foresight Solar is on about a 6.4% yield on a historic basis at the moment. So you're still getting that pickup on the yield. Uh, Premier Might and Global Renewables, I mean, it's a slightly different vehicle to be fair. It's, it's focused on listed companies, so securities in the infrastructure space. That's trading on a 17% discount at the moment and offers a yield of about 4.2%. Okay, interesting sector always. And now we can quickly catch up with a property trust. Uh, this is the Alternative Income REIT, ticker AIRE. Tell us what they've had to say. Yep, so these were interim results for the six months to the end of December. In that time, they generated an NAV total return of 9.7%. Uh, the share price was up 5.8% on a total return basis. So the property value was 107, just short of 108 million actually at the end of December. And that was across 18 properties. On terms of the rent collection, certainly by the end of March or certainly by the early stages of March this year, the fund had collected 100% of the 2021 rent. And in terms of the earnings per share for that six month period, that came in at 2.79p compared with 2.66p in the first half of 2021. So they declared dividends in total of 2.6p in respect of the period, and that represented a 16% increase for the previous half-year period. So basically, they remain on track to deliver a target annual dividend of 5.5p per share. That's expected will full dividend cover uh, by September this year. And just for completeness sake, therefore, what is the implied yield on on that one? Again, I've got the yield. uh, This is on a historic basis, to be fair, but that's on a 7.1% at present. Very interesting. So that brings us to the end of the results and so on. I need to say that next week we'll be recording the podcast as usual and obviously reflecting on events in Ukraine and indeed 
the outlook for interest rates and inflation and all the other factors we talk about. But I'm also able to say that Simon and I will be making an appearance in public, so to speak, at the uh, Master Investor Show in London, in Islington, next Saturday. So if you are by any chance uh, around or interested in going to that event, it's uh, pretty easy to get a ticket for that, I think. You will have a chance to um, hear us do a little performance on stage. And uh, of course, if you are there, do feel free to come up and talk to us and uh, uh, we'll be delighted to hear from you. So that's that. But in the meantime, we have to go back, unfortunately, and finish on this more somber note of what's happening in Ukraine. And I wanted to just raise a kind of difficult issue with you, Simon, which is we're recording this on Friday lunchtime. We've seen the markets actually quite strong this morning. We said there's been a lot of volatility and that will obviously continue. But what do you think the most favorable outcome for the markets is going to be of the Ukraine situation? What kind of things are investors going to react positively to? And uh, what would be the worst outcome? It's a really good question. And the answer, frankly, may be a little unpalatable because I suspect what we know, what markets really hate is uncertainty and a prolonged war, a prolonged conflict where questions remain unanswered in terms of where we're going, in terms of the economic impact, in terms of commodity shortages and so on and so forth would clearly be bad news for the market. So using that logically, it means that the market would welcome a quick resolution to this situation. And looking at this dispassionately, that sadly probably means a victory for Putin in whatever form that might take, or, and let's hope that this is certainly the case, some kind of settlement in short order. And certainly that's what the market appears to be reacting to or has in the last week or two, any kind of signs that there is a deal to be done that would see an end to this terrible chapter is, is clearly welcomed by the market. So the longer this goes on, I would suggest, as a rule of thumb, the worse it is for, for investors. Indeed. And as you said, it's a somewhat unpalatable implication of what is going on. And indeed, as we know from previous examples, if, for example, the Russians had marched in and immediately seized all their objectives without much resistance, the market would have priced that in quite quickly. And uh, you know, as it has done in previous military uh, conflicts where some of the big economies of the world are involved anyway, directly, as you say. And of course, the, the other issue is, well, what happens to all the sanctions uh, that happens if there is some kind of negotiated settlement, some kind of agreement that the Russians and Ukraine and obviously NATO and the Americans and so on and the EU can come to? What would be the terms of that? And what implications would that be for future security in the region, future commodity prices, future relationships, future energy prices, and so on? That would at least help investors to draw some more substantive conclusions about that. But in the meantime, we just have to watch. I'm sure I speak for many when I say we, we watch with horror the kind of scenes that are coming out of Ukraine. A war is never pretty, and this one is being played out in front of the TV cameras to a considerable extent, uh, which is why it's having such a significant emotional as well as uh, you know economic and political impact. So we'll all have to hope that there is a resolution, but um, quite what form that takes, uh, we don't yet know. So just on that final point, uh, Simon, what kind of readings are you getting from the investors you're talking to about how they feel about all this? It's a really good question. Obviously, there are different views on this. Clearly, everyone hopes that things are resolved in the short term. I think many investors are still thinking their way through this. I think they're still considering the, the repercussions. I haven't talked to too many who are assuming that we're going to see a conflict in Ukraine that will be extended for a long period of time because it's almost too awful to think about not from a market point of view, but in terms of the human cost. 
So I think people are genuinely hoping clearly that there is a, a peace settlement and they're basing decisions off that. I mean, if there were to be a kind of resolution to this conflict in, in short order, then I think it probably almost goes without saying that you would expect to see a kind of market rally on the back of that. But at the same time, I think a number of people have commented on this, that the world feels like it's changed a little over the last few weeks, that nothing will be quite the same. And even a short order resolution to the events in Ukraine, I still think we're going to be living with the repercussions of this for many years to come. Indeed. And even without taking account of those, we've still got to get back to this issue of what's going to happen to inflation and interest rates and how are we going to uh, bring inflation back down and so on. So it's not as if we're going to be going back into a cosy uh, and uh, you know everything running smoothly in the investment term. So uh, yeah, lots to think about, lots to worry about and lots to observe. So that's it this week and look forward to your company again next week and indeed in person if by any chance you happen to find your way to the Islington Design Centre where you will find Simon and I performing at uh, 10 o'clock in the morning. Look forward to that. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.